from Johanna Perales. If, you, if she's new to you, uh, Johanna and her husband Kevin help our 20 and 30s group. Um, she's no stranger to us. Come on up. No stranger to our stage. She's been on staff with us here and just completed a, I'm a you call it WIMO, but what is the actual? Women in Ministry Leadership. Women in Ministry Leadership course. And so you're super excited about that and where it's taking you. And so we're excited about the sermon. I know you've heard from the Lord on it. And so I'm going to turn it over. Will you please virtually welcome Johanna Perales. Thank you. Thank you, worship team. <laughs> so hello, everyone. Hello, digital world. Back of house. High five. Sorry, not high five, fist bump. Um, I'm super excited to what God has to say to us this morning. So I, back in February, when Kurt told me that I was going to be preaching on Esther, I immediately said, God, what do you want to say? And he just started giving me a word. And originally, Kevin and I were supposed to be at Comic-Con this weekend. <laughs> I just felt like God was like, this is way too important. He just put so heavy on my heart that I needed to cancel. I needed to move everything so that I could be here to preach. And who knew that this was what was going to happen? And the minute that we started, we said that we were going to cancel having... Um, a congregation having church here, I immediately said, God, is this really what I'm supposed to say? And he said, yes, I've been preparing. I knew this is what you need to say this morning. And so God has a word for us this morning. So just a few quick reminders. Please make sure you're washing your hands. <laughs> All right, sanitize, I guess is okay, second option. Um, please leave toilet paper for the rest of us. <laughs> Kevin and I had to go out and get toilet paper yesterday. And just so everyone knows, PCC in Issaquah still has TP, okay? So if you need some, they still have some. Um, Kevin actually got a recommendation from a friend that you can use old books. <laughs> Please don't do that if you have to, but I just, yeah, whatever. Um, and then the third thing uh, is make sure you don't touch your face. So I have had so much fun watching people online try not to touch their face. It's hilarious and actually quite impossible to do <laughs> as Adam touches his face. And just a disclaimer, I'm going to be touching my face this morning. It's just going to happen. Let's just let it go. Um, so I, I think probably the, most, the fun, funniest thing of all of this is just watching the memes on Facebook. And Kevin actually read something to me this last week, um, a post, and I was laughing hysterically, but I wanted to share it with you guys because I thought it was perfect for this morning. And let's see if I can get up here. All right. Phil Seattleites, our time has come. We have been preparing for this moment for a long time. You and I have been preparing for this moment ever since we arrived in this frigid town. When you took someone's number, promised to be best of friends forever and ever, then never called them back, you were preparing. When you ghosted your regular happy hour for a month because you were binge-watching six seasons of Game of Thrones, you were preparing. When you lost 11 months of your life to Skyrim, which is a video game, you were preparing. You may not have known it, you may have even felt guilty, but never was the thorough lack of ever effort at fellowship wasted. Your introversion, your isolation, your idiopathic insularity, it was all preparation. Seattle, everything has been leading to this. There is only one thing in the world capable of eradicating the coronavirus, the Seattle freeze. 
Friends, we've got this. We have been voluntary quarantining ourselves for years. Nowhere in this country, nay the world, are citizens as good at avoiding social connection. It's now, it's now time to inspire the rest of the country. Freeze everyone out like you've never freezed before. Seattle, make me proud. It's funny, right? It's hilarious. As a fellow introvert, I'm like, yes, freeze everyone out. I get to stay inside and binge watch as much Netflix as I want. Fabulous. Kevin can play as many video games as he wants. Great. But if you take a step back, this has a really deep truth to it, doesn't it? That this is our culture, that our culture applauds disconnection. that we're raising our kids in a society that they may not have social skills. It's true, isn't it? That this depression and suicide are on the rise. And you stop and you look around and you ask, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you intervening? We're gonna look at two things today that I wanna share with you. And one is that I believe that there is hope. And two is that I believe that you're the answer. I'm gonna to get to exactly what I mean by that in a second, but first we're gonna pray for the sermon and then we're gonna go directly into Esther, a Bible project video. So I'm gonna pray. <laughs> Adam's giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> All right. Adam's instructed me to lift myself up in another church, just in case you guys didn't get down the stream. All right. Father, we just thank you for this morning, and we thank you that you have a word for us. And God, I just ask that in this moment, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me. That it be your words and not mine, Father. And Lord, just as you prepare our hearts this morning for what you have for us, that you would start stirring in us, God, your love Lord, I just pray your protection, God, over this church, your protection over this congregation, your protection over this city, Father. Lord, that your hand would be on us, Father. And I just thank you that you are in control, God. And we just lift this up to you, Father, in your name. Amen. All right. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? 
but this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquets feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember for Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night 
the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. Beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder, of which Mordecai and Esther are a part. Not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story is not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral example as if it endorses all of their behavior. But they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we begin, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, 
when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history. And he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. To hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming this world. I want to look at this idea of hope. And in the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words used for hope. And the first one is yahal, which means to wait for. An example of this is Noah. And Noah, when he's in the ark and the floods have come, he has to yahal for weeks for the water to descend. And the second word is kwava. And kwava means to wait. And it's actually taken from the word kwaf which it means cord. And when you pull a cord, it produces tension. And the only way for that tension to be released is when it breaks. And so it's, kova is this idea, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait. And so to wait on the Lord, to hope is waiting on the Lord in expectation. But what are we waiting for? Over and over again in the Old Testament, it says that we're waiting for the Lord. I quava for the Lord and let Israel yahal for the Lord because he's loyal and will redeem Israel for its sins. Psalm 135 through seven. So this idea of biblical hope is based on a person. And it's not based on optimism. I wanna be really clear about that. Because optimism looks at circumstances and can see how it'll, work, how it'll work out. But that's not what hope is. That's not what our biblical hope is. Our biblical hope is in a God who saves. And the people who choose this are completely aware. They're completely aware that their circumstances aren't going to work out, that everything looks grim. And yet they wait on the Lord and let they choose this hope. And I just want us to look that, that Esther is an amazing example of this. That a decree came out that the Jews were going to be annihilated and yet God used Mordecai and Esther in this time to bring salvation. So are we going to hope in a God that's going to bring about salvation? See, this hope looks at God's past faithfulness. Past faithfulness that he's going to do something in the future. And see, our Christian hope looks back. It looks back at the risen Christ. That we can look forward and that we know that he's going to do something. I just want to take a second and look further into Esther chapter 4. So we come to Esther chapter four and Mordecai is grieving. He's heard of the decree from the Jews to be annihilated. 
and he's grieving. He's torn his clothes, he's covered in ash. He's put on sackcloth and he comes to the palace gates and he's mourning loudly. And he's not allowed to enter the palace while he's mourning. And so Esther hears of this and she sends her servant to him. And this happens and we're gonna pick up here in uh, verse six. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace. Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king is in her court without being invited is doomed to die. Unless the king holds out his gold scepter and the king and the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. If I must die, I must die. <laughs> Forget Wonder Woman, guys. Forget Captain Marvel. I want to be Esther. I want to have that kind of courage. She had zero reason to believe that this was going to work. She knew what the king had done to the previous queen for disobeying him. She knew, theologians believe that the moment when Esther was made queen, it's been four years since this very moment. She even says in her letter to Mordecai, he hasn't called for me in 30 days, she's worried. She's worried that he's losing interest, she's worried that she's losing her favor. And yet her reply to him is, if I die, I die? How, why, why would she reply to him like that? We look at Moses. When God came to Moses, he came to him in a burning bush. And yet Moses denied God three times, begging, send someone else to Pharaoh. Send someone else, don't send me. The God who told him to throw down his staff and become a snake, the God who did miracles before him, and yet Moses denies him. Eventually he says yes. But he was begging him, please God, don't send me. And you come back to Esther and Esther says, if I die, I die. Why? Mordecai is a human. He's coming to her as a human. Why would she trust him? 
because she knows him. He adopted her. He's her dad. She has a relationship with him. What is our relationship with God like? Who is God calling us to be? They knew each other. Kevin brought up the last few sermons last week and I wanted to do the same because I thought it was really good. He explained it in a sentence for each Justine sermon, how do we individually do evangelism? And then Kurt's sermon, how do we do, how do we as a community do evangelism? And then I wanted to put up Kevin's sermon last week. The key to unlocking this is loving God. That's not just enough to do, it's not just enough to know, but we need to have a relationship with the Father. We need to know him, we need to be able to trust him. And that is a key to unlocking this. And I wanna say that my second, the second key to unlocking this is loving others. See, I believe that God has placed the church inside this culture, this culture that says, that applauds being disconnected, that says, look at your screen and don't look up, don't make eye contact, freeze out the world. I believe that God has placed the church within this culture for such a time as this. Just like Mordecai called out to Esther, you have been made queen, you have been given favor for such a time as this. It explains, it puts in for such a time as this, gives us this idea of mess, of chaos. But God has chosen you. You are the answer. You are the answer. You are the answer for a culture that is dying. God wants to use you and fill you. And right now, I believe that God's giving us an opportunity to reset. He's giving you an opportunity. You're stuck in your homes. You need to stay six feet away from people. And God's saying, what are you gonna do? How are you living your life, church? How's your relationship with God? Are you spending time with him? Are you praying? Are you spending time with your spouse? Are you loving them? Are you praying together? How about your kids? Are you praying with your kids? You were given such a special time right now, you guys. Such a great opportunity to hit reset. We were no longer busy. We no longer have the excuses. It's being stripped away from us and God saying, what are you gonna do? going to do? Do you know God? Do you love each other? It says that the world may know by our love for one another. So are we going to love? Are we going to have that passion? Are we going to believe? Are we in each other's lives? This is going to end and we're gonna come back to Lake Sam. When we come back to Lake Sam, how are we gonna live differently? Are we gonna be a part of each other's lives? 
Are we going to choose love? Are we going to choose to invest? Are we going to choose to be intentional? Because I believe that God is doing that in this time. I believe that's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to something more. And you may be sitting here this morning and be saying, Joe, you don't know how I've been hurt. You have no idea. And you're right, I don't. But will you choose to have courage? Will you choose to have the courage that Esther had? It seems grim. It seems like there's no hope. It seems like there's no way that this is going to work out. There's no way that I'm going to be able to connect with other people. You don't get it. I don't do well with that. I'm awkward. Do you believe that God can move? Do you believe that he's going to do something in your life? I shared with you last time I got up here about my testimony and at Connection in 2018, I rededicated my life to God. In that moment when I rededicated my life to God, I said, God, I want all of it. I want all of it. I want all of you. Whatever I had before, whatever religiousness that was, I don't want it anymore. I just want you, Jesus. Give me all of you. I want everything, life and abundance. And I didn't realize this until this morning. I woke up at 1 a.m. and God downloaded this moment into my mind and made me remember and connected this for me, connected the dots for me. The very next day, I was at a women ministry leadership uh, workshop and we're wrapping up and I'm staying down and I was writing some note, I was looking down, the lady's starting to pray and she says, I just want everyone who is a senior pastor, feels called to be a senior pastor, stand up. I'm staying there, I'm writing, and all of a sudden there's like this stirring of the Holy Spirit in my heart and I just hear in my head, get up, that's you. And I'm sitting here and I'm writing down and I was like, oh, heck no, <laughs> that is not me. God, you got the wrong person. No way. You don't know how messy I am. You don't want me. And I just heard it again. That's you. Stand up. And so I stood up. It was in that moment that I felt like God called me to be a senior pastor. And that was never, ever on my radar. But when I said, God, I want you all of you, everything, in abundance. He was like, all right, let's go. Let's do this, we got this. See you guys, I'm an introvert. This is not where I wanna be. <laughs> I wanna be sitting down there. I wanna be in the crowd. I don't want the attention on me. Okay, when I was in grade school, I had to give a book report, and as I held the book, I shook uncontrollably. I was so scared. And this entire week, I have been so excited to do this. A friend even told me, I don't know how you guys do this, how you and Kevin do this. I don't know how you're doing this. I could never do that. I could never get up and preach in front of people. Me neither. <laughs> I have no idea. When God calls you, he gives you the tools. 
He gives you his Holy Spirit. He fills you and lets you be able to do what you thought you could never do. And all of a sudden you're doing things and you're living your life you never thought you were going to live. And it's more than you could have ever imagined, even for yourself. God's plan is so much greater. And so we come back and I say to you, God is calling you to love others as yourself in a deeper way, more than you could have ever imagined. And you're saying, that's not me, I'm a mess. I can't love people, I'm so hurt, you don't understand. And God is going to fill you with his spirit and give you the tools to do it if you have the courage to say yes. If you have courage to rise up to the calling because God has called us to this. He even told us the two greatest commands was love God and love people as yourself. This is what we're called to, people. This is what we're called to. In the midst of this culture, God has brought you here. You. You. He's calling you. You are my child. If I sat under the label of introvert, I would never be up here. But that's not my label. That's my earthly label. But my heavenly label is that I'm a beloved child of God. And because I'm a beloved child of God, I'm gonna walk out like I am a beloved child of God, that God has called me to something more. So we are called to something more today. Kevin and I recently had lunch with a really dear old friend. And they had actually asked us out to lunch. It took so much courage to do this because it was about a topic that we didn't necessarily agree on. I'm not gonna go into details. I'm not gonna tell you what it was about. That does not matter. But as sitting there and in defensiveness and arguing and coming around and around in circles, something happened in that moment. Something that is hard for me to describe except that God connected us in a way that we fell more in love with each other. All of a sudden, it wasn't even about the argument. It wasn't even about the fact that we couldn't come to an agreement. All of a sudden, we saw each other for how God sees us. All of a sudden, we saw through that. All of a sudden, it was about the fact that we were connected on a deeper level. And that is what I'm talking about, church. Are we willing to be real with one another? You may have set aside wanting to confront someone or wanting to have the hard conversation thinking, I want to preserve this relationship. If I have that conversation, it's going to destroy it. And that is a lie from the enemy because God wants to come in and renew and restore relationships and take it to a deeper place where we are so connected that we can't even believe that we could have this connection except that we have to praise God because we know that it's him doing it. It's him doing it, not us. So are we going to be the body of Christ? When we come back, when we are here in this room, are we gonna be the body of Christ? Are we gonna be intentional? Who are you loving? Who has God placed on your heart that you're supposed to invite to dinner? Who has God placed in your heart that you're supposed to be praying for? 
How are we going to be doing this? I read to you at the beginning the Seattle freeze and I took the liberty to rewrite it. And so I just wanna read that for you. And as we come to a close, I just wanna invite, are we doing a last song, a response song? Okay, I just wanna invite the worship team to come up and Kevin, if you can just play as I'm reading this. My fellow Lake Sammers, our time has come. We have been praying for this moment for a long time. You and I are preparing for this moment ever since we arrived in this frigid town. When you gave someone your number hoping to be the best of friends forever and ever and never got a call, you were preparing. When you finally got up the courage to invite someone to church only to be laughed at, you were preparing. When you spent many nights on your hands and knees praying for loved ones to know the Lord, you were preparing. You may not have known it, you may have even felt guilty and thought your efforts were in vain, but never were your prayers unheard or efforts unseen. Your hurt feelings, your misunderstandings, your anger for being forgotten, it was all preparation. Lake Sam, everything has been leading to this. There is only one thing in the world capable of eradicating loneliness and saving a generation from complete isolation, the power and love of Jesus Christ. Friends, we got this. We have been scared to step out for years, but hope is calling us forward. No matter how bad things get, we serve a God who's committed to redeeming his world. It's time to love like you've never loved before. Citizens of heaven, let's make him proud. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. I thank you, Lord, that in the mess of who we are, in our shortcomings of not knowing what to do or fear, that you speak out and you give us peace and you give us tools and you give us love for one another. It's because of you, God. It's because of you. So Lord, I just ask each and every person, God, each and every person watching this live stream, Father, each and every person in this room that you'd start stirring in our hearts a deeper love for you, a deeper love for one another, that you'd put on our hearts people that we need to be reaching out to, God, people that we need to bring into our lives, Father, people that we need to love, Lord, that may not always be preaching the name of Jesus, but may be that we need to reach out and be in relationship with people. That we need to show them what real love is. We need to show them what connection is, Father. I just pray that in the name of Jesus right now, God, that there is a hope that is beyond all understanding. There is a hope for the future, God, that is surprising as surprising as a man dying on a cross and rising from the dead. Lord, that we can look forward and we can know that there is hope. We can know that we serve a God who's going to redeem his world. And I just ask that you start with us, that each and every one of us, God, would know that you're gonna use us and that we would step up to the call, that we would have the courage 
and we would rise to the occasion, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God, God is so good. Two things, real quick, before we take offering and do our last song. First of all, nine years ago, these guys came to church for the first time, and there was just something about them that I went, I need, I was supposed to go after them. I felt, I'm, you know that, because I literally took you to lunch, and I said, I don't do this very often, but I'm just telling you, I feel like the Lord has told me I'm supposed to go after you. So I don't know what that means. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know anything. But what I do know is I'm going after you. And you guys responded and said, yeah. And you came and you started getting plugged in on the whole thing. And I want to say something. Did you just see the birth of a preacher here? <laughs> I mean, literally, even as you preached, you preached your way through all yourself anything that was sort of about you and you just started prophesying. I'm telling you, that was such a prophetic word. Remember something too. She got this word before anybody knew any of all this was going to be a thing. We'd heard reports about some virus, but there wasn't any talk about closing things down and doing all this kind of stuff. So it was a genuinely prophetic word from the very get-go. But then you prophesied it today. You stood in the mantle that we ask our preachers to stand in, which is prophetic mantle. And you just spoke a word that is timely and in season just for such a time as this. <laughs> Extraordinary. Extraordinary. I'm just, like I say, I'm really happy that we got this good prophetic word. But on a whole nother level, I'm just jumping out of my skin because last week you just killed it. And this week, you just killed it. That's probably not the right wording at this point in time, is it? <laughs> but you guys, you guys just, just his presence. So strongly, so beautifully. This is what you're called to. Thank you, God. We're getting to watch this. That's phenomenal. And it calls us to do the same, right? We can step out. We can become. We can do exactly what God just told us through you. We can become that person that, that we know we're supposed to be and we have all these reasons not to be. But we can take the courage and step out for just such a time as this. I love it. I love it. It's just full circle on everything. Everything we've been talking about as a church, like I said earlier in the whole thing. Phenomenal. Lord, in Jesus' name, even, we just pray for these two. And I ask you, God, that wherever and however, bring them this home, bring them this place, bring them this people, bring them, bring them this work. And in Jesus' most beautiful name, God anoint. And God change the world because of them. Change lives, which is changing the world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. What a beautiful gift for me as I'm coming to an end of this journey. Thank you, God. Um, 